0: Have the Bible reading, which is from Mark chapter fifteen, verse twenty-one, through to chapter sixteen, verses one to eight. Hi, I'm Chanel. I'll be bringing you the Bible reading for tonight the crucifixion a man a certain man from Cyrene Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh when he did not take it um, and he did not take it and they crucified him Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So! You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, Lama Chani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now... Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, <clears throat> Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stand there in front of Jesus heard this, his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Hosea's and Salome in Galilee these women had followed him and cared for his needs many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there it was preparation day that is the day before the sabbath So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, Took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb, cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Hosea saw where he was laid. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus's body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away already. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe, Because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's been quite a while since. Is that me? Thanks for the pat. It's nice to be here again with you tonight. I haven't been, I'm not sure for how long, maybe six, seven, eight weeks. um, I think it was towards the end of October. I haven't been uh, with my dad passing. He passed away on 20th of October and I don't think I've been back uh, to an evening service since then. So I have missed you guys and I'm glad to be here tonight. And I have been given this passage to conclude our series on the Gospel of Mark. It's a very familiar passage and just as David, Pastor David, led us in communion and encouraged us to reflect that this would strike us anew. Uh, So that's true also for this incredibly full story which is full of detail and I hope to open some of that for us tonight and to see what God would say to you and to us. There was a dad who had two sons, and before I pray, I'll tell you the story, and the youngest son was out riding his bike on a dusty road. They lived on a farm, and a guy came driving down that dusty road in a car, was travelling far too fast, and hit the son and killed him. And uh, the dad eventually goes to pick up with his son to pick up the mangled bike. And he takes the bike back to the farm, back to the shed, and he puts it in a corner of the shed over out of the way where they hardly ever went and the elder son who tells this the other son who tells this story says that my dad whenever he saw it took him a while to get over the death obviously but whenever he saw the mangled bike even years later tears would come to his eyes he wouldn't say much but it still was impacting him emotionally and the son writes Lord Jesus may the times I see the elements of communion may that have an impact upon me like that bike did upon my dad, to be reminded of the reality of it. Because the truth is, we hear this story so often, we talk about Jesus and his death and his resurrection, and we are so familiar with the story that we can become over familiar, that it loses some of its impact upon us. And so my prayer for me and for us tonight is that that doesn't happen, that we'll be renewed, will be refreshed, will be rechallenged, we'll have some new insight or understanding of exactly what the Lord Jesus, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit together have done for us. And if you've been listening to the words of these songs, you you guys have done an outstanding job tonight. Very well done. And the songs have been just spot on because I know what I'm going to be saying. And you've just hit the nail on the head each time. And so you'll see, I trust, a reinforcement of those very clear truths. We're going to pray and ask God's help. Bow with me, please. Thanks, Father, that we have the opportunity to be together. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for this reminder of all that you have done through your son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, deliver us from being complacent about it or overfamiliar with it, but surprise us inform us, challenge us, move us, transform us to be more like him through this incredible demonstration of his and your love for us. We ask and pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Jesus crucified, died, buried and risen. That's in fact how Mark chapter 15 in particular concludes for us. Uh, Mark chapter 15, from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, falls into those very simple paragraphs. There is the crucifixion, we'll talk about that. There is the mocking that he experienced on the cross. There is his death, and the demonstration, the declaration of it, and then there is the burial of the Lord Jesus. That's chapter 15. And it's action-packed. in these 20-something verses, 25 or 26 verses, there's 30 to 35 truths. And so it's a full passage. And we won't be able to dig into all of those, but we'll certainly allude and mention many of them. So all I want to do tonight is to read the passage with you and to work our way through it. I don't know if I can see that far. I hope I can. So they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. He's already been on trial, he's already been before Pilate. And we would have dealt with this, I'm sure, in, the, in previous weeks. But it's interesting, in, not in the Bible, but in background history, the reason the Jews were able to get Pilate to agree, and he didn't want to, but the reason he did agree to saying, finally, okay, take him and crucify him, is that Pilate had already committed about three misdemeanours, three faux pas politically. And he had been reported to Caesar and Caesar had basically said to him, one more count and I'll recall you. And if you read John's gospel, not Mark, but if you read John's gospel, you'll find that the Jews know that and they allude to it. You know, we have no king but Caesar. You're not a friend of Caesar. And it's because of that fear of him being dobbed in that he finally conceded, washed his hand and said, go right ahead. There was one final thing that he did, which was really, I think, a parting shot. We'll come to it in verse 26 of this chapter, but he writes a sign, which was typical, that they would write the name of the person being crucified and the crime that he was guilty of. And Pilate is the one who wrote that. Well, the passage says to us, what happened to verse 21? So much for my cut and paste skills. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha. That's the Aramaic name for this place. It's north of Jerusalem. It's called the place of the skull because some people would say that actually if you've been there, and some of you have, who's been there? Does it look like a skull? That's what the authors say, the commentators, the apologists, they all write about how at a certain angle you look at this outcrop from north of Jerusalem, it actually looks like a, a skull, which is how it got its name. In Latin, in Greek rather, it's called a cranium, and in Latin it's called a Calveria, from where we get the word Calvary. It comes from this. It's an Aramaic word, Golgotha, place of the skull. Outside the city gates. Jesus was taken there to be crucified. It was to be like taking him north of Brisbane and putting him on beside the Bruce Highway. It was public, it was a main thoroughfare. And so it was a public demonstration, a warning to everybody else, you rebel against us and this is what will happen to you. But in the providence of God, that's where Jesus goes. And the sign and the transactions of what happens on that is God trying to communicate to the world. We'll come to that. There they offered him, it says, I can't read that, I'll read this. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which is like a painkiller when he got there and uh, he refuses to take it. We're not told why, but everybody assumes it because he wanted to maintain his faculties. He wanted to be in full awareness and control, as much as he could be, of what he would say and what was happening. And verse 24, and they crucified him. Um, before we get to the dividing up of things, the process of crucifixion would have been that they often whipped you beforehand to speed up the process. Crucifixion was a horrible way to die and was a very slow way to die took normally two or three days. The longest on record, according to William Barclay, who is not always trustworthy when it comes to the New Testament uh, commentaries in terms of miracles, and some of his theology is a little bit questionable. when it comes to historical data and to Greek words, he's outstanding. And William Barclay points out um, that when the longest on record, ancient history records, is a person survived on the cross for nine days. It was a slow, excruciating process. Um, It would begin with the victim would be marched through the city and he would uh, tape, uh, strapped around his neck a sign. And on the sign, as I said before, would be his name and his crime, what he was accused of. And Pilate was the one who wrote it. And you would need to read all four of the Gospels because Mark doesn't tell us everything, but he'll tell us a little bit in a moment. But the sign basically said, I'll get to it now, is Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. And Mark doesn't tell this, John does. It says, don't write that. It was Pilate's way of getting back at them because they had set him up and they were using him and he knew it. And so he was like having one final shot. And this is Jesus of Nazareth, which becomes a significant sign, I think. And he marches with a crossbeam, the patibulum. He would have been tied to that with a rope and he would have walked through the city of Jerusalem on the path, he and the others who were being crucified with him with his sign around his neck. And the passage tells us that he, that's verse 21, that he got to a certain point and he collapsed. And the Roman soldiers commanded, they forced a guy by the name of, what was his name? Simon of Cyrene. Pulled him out of the crowd. The Romans could do that. If you were standing there watching what was going on, they could conscript you to walk a mile. Remember Jesus said that another time of... If they conscript you to walk a mile, walk too. Well, that's what happened here. They grabbed Simon, who had come from Cyrene with his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, who later becomes probably a believer, conscripted him to carry the patibulum, this crossbeam for Jesus. So Jesus would have followed behind with a sign around him, but Simon carrying the crossbeam. Then they would have got Golgotha, the place of the crucifixion. They would have laid him down, nailed the crossbeam, fixed it to the upright that was going to be mounted And then they did two things. He was already tied to the patibulum, the crossbeam, but they would have driven a nail through his hands or through the wrist here. One through here, one through here, cross the feet over and one through there to fasten him. There was no getting off the cross. And on the cross, halfway up or thereabouts, there was a little seat. And the whole idea was, I'm just reminding you, I know many of you know this, that the the victim would hang on the cross and he would try to breathe (laughs) And then he would rest because of the excruciating pain of holding yourself up and pushing yourself up on nails. And you would rest on the seats. But then breathing became difficult, so you had to push yourself up again. And that's why it was a very slow process of continually pushing yourself up and down over hours and hours and days before eventually you would asphyxiate. Well, it's there that they crucified him. There were four Roman soldiers, a centurion and three others, and as was their custom, they would take the belongings of the one being executed, and they were divided equally amongst themselves. So they divided up his shoes and his belt and his garments, his outer garment, and his undergarments, and he had this particular robe, this undergarment, which was seamless and would appear to be very valuable. And they weren't sure who should get that, so they cast lots probably manufactured lots, four stones or four bits of broken pottery or something and, and they were casting that and somebody gets the robe and they keep that as their own memento of their service. Their duty was to stay there until the person had died to stop everybody else coming to take the victim down from the cross. If they gave in and they surrendered the body before the person was dead, they took that person's place. So on pain of their own death, they would make sure the victim would be dead. They divided up his casting lots for it to see what each would get. Mark tells us, as do the other gospel writers, I've got to do two things. I can't do this. I'm not a woman. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. Mark gives us definitely three time references in this chapter and there's one that that he alludes to, a fourth one, at the end of the chapter. It was nine o'clock in the morning, the third hour when they crucified him. Um, The written notice of the charge against him read, Mark simply says, the king of the Jews, which is part of the notice, but the important part. They also crucified with him two rebels, two revolutionaries, two terrorists, two criminals, possibly murderers. There were three of them. One of them was called Barabbas, and Pilate substituted Barabbas for Jesus at the behest of the crowd. But his other two mates would suffer the fate that Barabbas himself should have received. One on his right, one on his left that's the crucifixion then from verses 29 to 32 we read about the mocking that Jesus encountered for us on the cross those who pass by you would think in reading that this is just people walking along on the highway on the road main road north but when you read what they say they hurled insults at him shaking their heads and saying so You're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, are you? Come down from the cross and save yourself. The words they use are the words that the false witnesses use before Pilate. These are not just anybody walking by. These guys have been sent. These guys have been informed to come and to humiliate publicly, to jeer at him. And so it's interesting. I'll come back to that. In the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, likewise mocked him. Listen to what they said. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe, which is nonsense, because if they did see, they still wouldn't believe. Those who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So the passers-by insulted him. The chief priests and the teachers of the law who had gone out of their way to leave their temple and Sanhedrin or wherever they were and to travel north out of the city deliberately with the intention of mocking him publicly such was their hatred and their vehemence against the Lord Jesus and not only that but the two people who were crucified beside him they likewise were mocking him and it's interesting when you look at it they mocked him because you said destroy this temple and they mocked him for being a prophet save yourself he said you would save others, save yourself. And it's just as well he didn't save himself, isn't it? Otherwise, none of us would be saved. They mocked him for his being saviour. And the Jewish leaders mocked him for being a king. He was mocked for all of his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And interestingly, between from nine o'clock, one of the thieves is insulting him. And if you read the other Gospels, you work it out that eventually, before noon, one of those criminals changed his tune. And he stopped mocking. He rebuked the other guy of saying, you know, we're deserving what we're getting. This guy's not. He had heard what Jesus had said. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He had heard what Jesus had said um, uh, to him. He heard what Jesus said to him about, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was watching the Lord Jesus and observing. He saw the sign. This is Jesus, the saviour of Nazareth, used to being rejected. King of the Jews, the king with a kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom, he says, by faith. And Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Marvellous words. This guy gets transformed. Mark doesn't tell us too much about that. He just simply says, after that event, Jesus also says, you know, to Mary, there's your son John, and John, there is your mother, look after each other, and they leave at that point. At noon, Mark tells us, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Three hours of uh, darkness. Let me pause for a second and just talk about this darkness, because it was a darkness as it is referred to in secular history, and it's a darkness which is significant. Because it has a theological meaning. What does it mean? Why was the darkness not a natural thing? It's not an eclipse of the sun because it's the full moon. It's the Passover. The moon's on the complete opposite side to the sun. This darkness was sent by God. This was instituted upon creation. Why? Well, we don't know. But you could think about it and hazard a guess. Because there's something secret was happening. Once a year on the atonement day, the high priest would go into the temple. He would go behind the curtain where it was dark. And there he would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. That's where the day of atonement was and redemption was symbolically demonstrated. Happened in the darkness. Maybe that's what this is about. That Jesus, our ultimate high priest is now sacrificing his blood for us. Darkness is also a symbol of wickedness and of evil. And this was the most heinous sin that mankind had ever killed, uh, committed. They were killing the very Son of God Himself. They were, the Prince of Life. They were putting to death. And God said, "You're not watching this," and He shut it down. Darkness, a darkness that could be felt. Can you remember a time in the Bible where there was a period of darkness as well, a darkness that could be felt? Anything come to mind? Think of the ten plagues. The ninth plague is darkness. And the Bible actually says in the book of Exodus that it could be felt. don't know if you've ever been in that sort of situation. We have light all around us. Even when you turn all these lights off, there's still light outside for us because we live in a city. But if you're in the country, it's possible to get to nearly total darkness. Well, something secret was happening. Something wickedness is being demonstrated. But I think... Also, into this darkness, um, there is this judgment. And darkness, the ninth plague, preceded the death of, what was the last plague? The firstborn. Darkness preceded the death of the firstborn. It's God making a link between what he did in judgment back in Exodus with what is going on here on the cross. Well, all of those, as I said, are possibilities. But let me just read this to you. The divine executioner unleashed justice against the sin-bearer. The full weight of God's wrath against sin was poured out on God the Son. Nobody else will experience it. Even people who, uh, rebels against God, who will be sentenced for an eternal punishment in hell, will not experience what Jesus did, because... They will go on for eternity experiencing their, ju- their justice and the punishment that, excuse me, that Jesus consumed in a span of time because he is divine, because he's the son of God. He took the full wrath of God against our sin. He paid the full penalty for us. This is not God the father being cranky, at God the son. This is not God against God. This is God, the triune God, inflicting himself and absorbing our punishment to set us free that's what happens in this darkness on calvary the divine executioner paying our debt in full the curse of sin is gone from me we have been forgiven potentially if we repent and believe and accept jesus and coming out of the darkness, Jesus says, in fact, four things, but Mark tells us only two. The first one is a cry. Both are a loud cry in the Gospel of Mark. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. What's that mean? Well, it's translated for us. It's Aramaic again. My God, my God, not my heavenly father, not righteous Lord. It's my God, my God. It's not a relational judge, uh, separation, but it is a judicial one. And Jesus had a sense that he was somehow, something was missing, something was absent that had always been there for him. And I think, as nearest I can get to it is, there was no loving communion between the Father and the Son at that point because he had become the sin bearer. He stood in our place to take what we deserved in order that we could stand in his place to receive what he deserved. He is the divine substitute. He paid our penalty. There was no loving communion. There's no comfort. There's no compassion that he's sensing. And that's weird for Jesus. That's the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was wrestling with of, is there any other way? Let this cup pass me by, but not my will, but your will be done. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to be separated from you. But it was necessary, and he voluntarily committed himself to it and praise him that he did so. So, of course, the Gentiles and the other people standing around, because he said, Eloi, Eloi, they misunderstood. They thought he was calling out for Elijah, because back in those days and amongst the common people, there was a rumor that if you called out to Elijah, he would come and assist you in times of distress. That might sound weird to us, but if you have Catholic friends or Catholic backgrounds or contacts, then they have a similar belief. They have certain saints that if you pray and cry out to them, they will come to assist you and many other peoples do as well. Well, that belief was around, so they're saying, let's wait and see if Elijah actually does come to assist him. Um, Someone immediately ran with a sponge, filled it with sour wine vinegar again, um, with some sort of pain medication involved in it, and they gave it to Jesus to drink, and this time he drank it. This is getting towards the end, and he knows it. Mark doesn't tell us, but John says, just before this happened, Jesus said, I thirst. And that's why they gave him to drink. And then they said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. So they didn't give it to him because he was thirsty. They didn't give it to him, I don't think, to revive him. I think they gave it to him because it was all part of the mocking ceremony. Hey, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes. Making fun of him. And then Mark concludes for us, Jesus gave another loud cry. The other Gospels you need to read, the loud cry Jesus gave was, it is finished. He bows his head and he prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and he breathes his last. Mark simply tells us he gave a loud cry and Jesus breathed his last. He was dead. Mark tells us about two signs. He tells us about the darkness and the other sign he tells us about is this curtain in the temple being torn in two, which is very significant. And there have been lots of, you know, meditations and many of you would have heard that certainly over time. The curtain being torn in two was significant because the curtain, assuming it's the inner curtain, and most people do, so I do as well, it's this curtain that separates in the Jewish temple between the Holy of Holies uh, and the holy place. It's the priest could go in here, but only the high priest once a year could go beyond that curtain. It's that curtain, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, uh, whatever that is in meters, and it's thick. And it was torn from top to bottom. God ripped it. God rent it asunder. Because the curtain symbolized and demonstrated stay out. You can't come in because of sin, but now that the curtain is torn, it's God saying the way is open. You can now come into a saving relationship with me. You can know me personally because of what my son has done that he has died and paid the full penalty for your sin. Tacitus and Josephus, early historians and even the Jewish Talmud refer to this event, the curtain being torn and they add this very interesting, Mark doesn't so forgive me for this little aside but they add the temple gates which are normally open at this point were closed someone closed them, maybe God while the darkness was happening and the menorah, that very special candlelight that had seven Uh, lights on it, the centre one at this point, when the temple was torn in two, the centre one went out according to the Talmud interesting isn't it God's son, the light of the world, had died and gave his life for us when the centurion the guy in charge of the fall probably a low ranking Roman officer um He'd been watching all of this. He was probably the one who participated in flogging the Lord Jesus, putting the purple robe on him, the crown of thorns, and mocking him, and mistreating him, and marching him out. And he was observing. And that actually says to us that he was standing facing him, in front of him. He heard what he said to the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What he had said when he nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He had seen many crucifixions, my guess is, but he had never seen. The passage actually says he stood there in front of Jesus and when he saw how he died, how he died, not meaning by crucifixion, but the way that he died by being crucified. He died in control. He died with authority. He died dismissing his spirit father into your hands i commit my spirit and breathe his last and the, the centurion draws the only conclusion he is capable of drawing truly this man was the son of god he is who he claimed to be and in fact my guess is he comes to faith with that declaration he comes to know who he is Just like the criminal is the last convert before Jesus' death, therefore the centurion is the first convert after Jesus' death. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Initially, they were up close you put it together then mary and john had already left before the darkness and it would appear that the women had likewise moved away they hadn't left but they were now at a distance they were still watching they were still engaged and mark tells us their names among them was mary magdalene mary another mary the mother of james the younger who was one of the apostles and joseph and a lady called salome in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. There were many other women likewise who had come up with him to Jerusalem, and they were there as well. And if you look at the Gospels, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there initially. There's Mary Magdalene. There's this Mary, the mother of Salome. Mary, the mother of Jesus, has got a sister. Guess what her name is? Mary. There were five Marys, um, which I just find, I, I don't know what to make of that. It's just lack of creativity by parents or something but the women are there and the important thing to note is that not only were they were there it's the women are last at the tomb and they're first at the tomb on easter sunday that's the women uh, in love with the lord jesus and wanting to serve him faithfully that's to be noted Um, and we are told in verse 42 and following was the preparation day what's that mean it means it's friday it's the day before the sabbath it's the day you get ready for the sabbath It was the preparation day. And so evening approached. The Jews divided their times into different watches and the evening was from 6 p.m. on. That was evening, the start of a new day. From 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. was called early evening. So the darkness ended at 3. The Lord Jesus dies. And now all of this happens before 6 p.m. It happens in a space of several hours in here. Uh, So as evening was approaching, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a prominent member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, probably absent when they voted to crucify the Lord Jesus. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He's a righteous, he's a believer, he's a a follower of the Lord Jesus, John tells, a secret disciple, not out and publicly just yet. But now he declares his faith. He went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He not only followed Jesus' Secretly, when Jesus was alive, but when Jesus died, that sort of strengthened him to say, I'm standing for him. And he went to claim his body. And then notice, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. What time was he put on the cross? Nine o'clock. What time is it now? Just after three, four o'clock? Six hours, seven hours later, he's dead? Takes days. Pilate didn't believe it. So he sent for the Roman centurion. He said, is he dead? And the Roman centurion confirms it. When he learned that it was the case, then he gave the body to Joseph. Joseph returns. He had bought some linen cloth, took the body of the Lord Jesus from the cross, along with Nicodemus. He placed it in a tomb, a tomb that he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone in front of it to protect it against thieves and against animals and all other sorts of things. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. That's an important reference. The Jewish burial system is that you get buried on exactly the same day that you die. They don't cremate, they don't embalm. You die today, they'll bury you today and they'll bury you before sundown. They will certainly try to do that. And in the burial process, they will take your body and wash it and clean it. And then they'll take strips of linen cloth and wrap it around your arms and your arms and your legs and all the way up to your neck. And around your neck, they will place like a, a band to keep your mouth shut so no animals or insects or anything else can get in. And in all the folding of the linen garments, they will be putting spices and perfumes and oils and aloes to overcome the stench of a dying body. And if you know John chapter 11, Lazarus and Jesus is going to raise him. And one of the sisters says, you know, Lord, by this time, he's going to stink. Yeah. Well, after four days, the human body would stink. If you've never smelt a dead human body, the odor is unforgettable. And so they would do all of that. But because this is the evening, the, special, the shorter evening before six o'clock, they're rushing. They've got to be finished before six o'clock. And the women are standing there watching and they don't have time to participate and to do what they would love to have done. So they watch Joseph and Nicodemus, quickly put a napkin over the face of the Lord Jesus and then they went away. And the women would have stopped, would have obeyed the laws of the Sabbath. But Saturday night they would have got some more spices and perfumes and oils and they fully intended to return Sunday morning to finish the burial process that they know was not finished. So that's exactly what they do. When the Sabbath was over, Sunday now, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, um, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other a question, which I just don't get. Who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? They were there on the Friday. They saw them roll the stone in place. It's a big stone. Those who know the weights, uh, the uh, types of stone in the era, and the size of it, they say it weighs something like two ton. And what's intriguing is that it was in a little gutty thing. You could roll it up in a little track, um, but the women were not, certainly not confident that they would have the strength to be able to do it. But as they travelled along with their spices, they would have been in a state of shock, as we usually are when a loved one Passes away, and they went fully expecting to find his body. They did not expect to encounter what they encountered. As they're walking along, they lift up and they see Mark says to us, verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled. Notice what it says? It doesn't say rolled back, it says rolled away. And when you look at the Greek text, what Mark is actually saying to us very clearly is somebody hadn't come and rolled the stone back in the gutter. Somebody had come and lifted the stone up and moved it away from the tomb. Demonstration of God's power. Matthew, in fact, tells us it was an angel. There was an earthquake. An angel came and rolled the stone away and then he sat on it and basically said, there. As they entered the tomb... Mary Magdalene, Mark doesn't give us these details but Mary Magdalene would have looked in see the body was gone, she runs back the other women go into the tomb when they get inside the tomb they saw a very handsome Australian young man doesn't say that but obviously this is an angel dressed in luminescent robes, white robes and he was sitting on the right hand side when they came into the tomb and they were freaking out The angel says to them appropriately, don't freak out, don't be alarmed. He knows what they're doing. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, declaration of fact. And then I think the next bit needs to be read like this. He looks at them and he says to them, he has risen. And they go, so then the angel says, he is not here. And they look at him and so then the angel says, look closely at the place where they laid him. It's taking some time for the reality of it to dawn upon them. They're in a state of shock and now they're in an even greater state of of shock. And when the angel says to them, see the place, he's actually saying, examine it. Look very carefully at this, check it out. Make no mistakes about what is going on here. Um... And I assume they did that. But then the angel instructs them, verse 7, but now go, tell his disciples. They're commanded to go and tell. Tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The Lord always does what he tells us. He's always faithful and true to what he says. Mark's gospel finishes, this is debated, but this is my view, finishes with verse 8. This is the last thing Mark writes, trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They were freaking out. And what do you want to know? I think Mark deliberately ends the story like that. It's like watching a movie, and when you get to the end of it, it's like, that's it? There's no resolution? What happened? That's, I think, Mark's intent. You're left with a question of, well, what happened? It's for you to examine. It's for you to, well, what do you think happened? The book of Acts ends in the same way. Paul is under house arrest and he's there for two years and he's preaching and stuff, and suddenly it stops. Well, then what happened? Well, it's for you to find out. It's for you to continue the story. Mark has deliberately structured his gospel in order to call us in and to draw a conclusion from us of, well, what do you think? Who was he, Jesus? How did he die? What's the point of the angel and the women and these signs, the curtain being broken in two and the darkness which could be felt and the, the uh, guy crucified beside him, the criminal becoming a follower and the Roman centurion becoming a follower? What's your conclusion? And I think it's clear and obvious what Mark wants us to conclude. These are the truths and the facts of the Lord Jesus. And I want to finish by sharing with you this There's a preacher from about 150 years ago. His name was John Charles Ryle. And he wrote a commentary on all of the uh, four Gospels. It's very well written. And this is his reflection. And he has certainly been quoted or he has influenced many preachers since he wrote this. This is his reflection. He says, The judge of all of the earth, Jesus, was delivered into the hands of Roman soldiers to be judged himself. The judge was judged. Why? Why did he allow himself to be sentenced? Well, he was insulted publicly in order that we, his followers, might be honoured and glorified. He was stripped of all of his clothes in order that we might be clothed with the garments of righteousness. He was forsaken and there's a whole stage, the forsakenness, and Mark tells us, just the end of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he was forsaken by the disciples, by those closest to him, denied by Judas, uh, betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, abandoned by everybody. And then ultimately on the cross, even by, he sensed a gap between him and God. Why was he forsaken? In order that we might be reconciled, accepted, He took our curse so that we could receive his blessing. And he was reckoned, counted amongst sinners in order that we might be reckoned and counted amongst the saints. That's what Jesus did. Came and stood in our place, gave his all for us because he loved us and was faithful to the charge that the Father had given him. Let's pray. Once again, Father, thank you for your word and for this truth, these truths. Thank you for Jesus and the redemption, the forgiveness, the new life, the abundant life that we now have available to us in Jesus. Lord, deliver us from being attracted by the distractions of this world. Deliver us from the delusions and lies of the evil one. And help us to grasp the truth and to hold to it unswervingly and to declare it unashamedly. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done for us. We pray that you would now achieve your purposes in us. Fill us with your spirit. May our passion be to serve you and to see lives transformed for your honour and glory. And we pray in your wonderful
0: name. And everybody said, Amen.